I'm Imogen Bell from Origin in Melbourne and our welcome project looked at whether or not reducing repetitive negative thinking was an active ingredient underlying effective treatment of youth depression and anxiety. We looked at the research literature and we also spoke to young people and clinicians to get their perspectives as well. Young people and clinicians both told us that this was an important active ingredient, that reducing repetitive negative thinking is an important part of treatment. And the research supported this, um, that when you reduce repetitive negative thinking in treatment, you also see improvements in depression and anxiety. What we don't know is whether or not the improvements in repetitive negative thinking are what causes um, the improvements in depression and anxiety. So this is what we um, have to focus on next in research. Welcome everyone to the Active Ingredients podcast. This is Andre from The Mental Elf and I'm here with Dr Imogen Bell. She's a researcher and a psychologist uh, interested in psychosis and digital mental health and youth mental health uh, and she works at Origin in Melbourne, Australia and has recently completed one of the welcome Active Ingredients reviews on reduced repetitive negative thinking. Welcome to the podcast, Imogen. Uh, I want to start by asking you, what made you decide to focus on that active ingredient? Thanks, Andre. It's really great to be here and be able to talk to you um, about this. The project is all about um, making treatments better uh, for young people with depression and anxiety, which we know is very common. And the approach that they're taking is that we need to have a better understanding of what the actual ingredients are within the treatments that make a difference. And when we think about that, we often think about the mechanisms that those, those treatments are targeting. What is it that they are trying to improve? What are the problems underneath depression, anxiety that, uh, that we need to target, that we need to modify? And when we, in our learnings and what we know about this, and certainly when I've looked at the literature, one of the things that seems to be really commonly associated with depression, anxiety in young people and also adults and other mental health conditions as well, actually, is this idea of repetitive negative thinking. This is a process where you get caught up in your negative thoughts. You're kind of going over and over things in your mind, problems um, that you can't solve or things about your life that you're not happy about. And just repeatedly focusing, worrying about them, ruminating about them seems to sort of drive depression and anxiety and some other sorts of problems. So we wanted to see whether or not reducing that as one of the key mechanisms that we think is causing this issue um, actually was, was an important part of treatment. It's interesting, isn't it, when you talk about mental health treatments and the mechanisms, because looking at the evidence, you know, we know that antidepressants work quite well for some people. We know that talking treatments work quite well for some people, but we don't really know why. Mm. Um, and you know if you, it, that, it, it's almost like you know does that matter I, I think a lot of clinicians probably think it doesn't if, if we know it works does it matter why but active ingredients is all about finding out why um, so I'm interested in the evidence that you found and whether that actually kind of supported your initial views about your active ingredients tell us about that yeah, so we were really interested in answering that particular question. Like, does it does it matter whether you target um, reductions in repetitive negative thinking or do things just get better anyway, um, no matter what you do? 
And so what we did is a, is a systematic review. We, we found randomised controlled trials that had um, applied a, a treatment to young people with depression or anxiety. So we looked at both. And the treatments, um, the trials needed to include an outcome measure of repetitive negative thinking and depression um, or anxiety. The reason for that is that we wanted to see whether or not um, improvements in repetitive negative thinking, so when, when repetitive negative thinking decreases, does is there also a corresponding change in depression and anxiety? Do there, does there seem to be an association between those, those outcomes? Because if there is, it might suggest that there is an important um, linkage there that one of, might be one of the reasons why these treatments are working via that particular pathway or that mechanism. So it was one of the things we looked at. The other thing we looked at, like I said earlier, was whether or not targeting repetitive negative thinking directly as the treatment. Um, so things like rumination-focused CBT, for example, which focuses entirely on reducing rumination as a form of repetitive negative thinking or sort of worry-related interventions, whether they were more effective, whether they had better effect sizes um, than interventions that were more general like CBT or um, you know, cognitive restructuring of any type of negative thought. And we had some interesting findings. Firstly, um, the effect sizes across all of those outcomes, repetitive negative thinking, depression and anxiety, were very similar. And we're actually right now doing a, a meta-analysis to try and analyse whether or not there is a statistically significant relationship between those outcomes. Um, and there have been two meta-analyses published in the adult literature um, on this particular question, which have shown that those outcomes are related. So it suggests that there's some form of relationship going on between that mechanism and its outcomes. But we know very little about whether there's a causal pathway there, whether reducing repetitive negative thinking is what causes those improvements. We actually need certain type of trial to do that and that there's not many of them around, unfortunately. So that's one of the things we recommend is more of those. The second um, thing is that there didn't seem to be a difference between those types of interventions. So interestingly, when you target repetitive negative thinking within the intervention, the effects um, seem to be similar for um, depression and anxiety, seem to be larger for repetitive negative thinking, but not so for those um, emotional symptoms. So you might question then, you know, does, it, does it really matter? Do we really need to target specific mechanisms at all? I, I think that we do. I think that there are key, there's a puzzle here for us to solve um, and I think that if we continue, we will get to the heart of better treatments. I think that understanding how and why those treatments work is one of the pathways to improving them. Um, if we don't do that, I don't think we're ever going to move beyond the sort of moderate effect size that we commonly see across all the different treatments. And that's not to say that those common elements like building rapport and um, dealing with emotions and things like this aren't, aren't important, but I think that there are some... Um, I think there's some work, more work to be done around understanding why they work. And I think that, that might lead to better treatments, I really do. And this is one of 30 or so active ingredients reviews that have been commissioned by Welcome over the last few months. Um, and there's another yep. round of new active ingredients projects that's going to start next year. Um, mm. And you've all been you know, asked to do something quite... Um, quite significant in terms of, you know, the amount of work in the amount of time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Whilst there's a pandemic going on, 
So the next question I've got is one thing that surprised you about what you found out, and it might it might just be that it surprised you you managed to hit the deadline. I think that's what a lot of the researchers are saying. But what, were there any kind of particular surprising findings about this piece of work? It's funny you say that. I mean, it, it was very, very difficult. It was commissioned before the pandemic and started, you know, just as the pan- pandemic kicked off. So it has been a massive, massive challenge, but the team managed to pull together and, and get the deadline done, although we do still have that meta-analysis to do, which we're preparing now. You know, speaking to young people and, and clinicians and some of the individual trials had some, um, gave rise to some really interesting insights. The, the trials, um, there's a few that really stand out to me. One was um, done by Matthew Medini and, and colleagues, and this one had a different approach. Usually when we study um, the effects of, of treatments. We give the treatment, we expose a group of people to that treatment, and then we have a control group that doesn't get exposed to that treatment. And we, we measure their you know, symptoms before and after, and we hope to see that the treatment um, does better, leads to better improvements than the control. But we never think much about uh, what happens in the middle. You know, how should that intervention actually be delivered? How, what's the experience of that inter- intervention? How should it be applied? Um, and this was a really interesting set of trials, actually. What they did was they looked at two different types of intervention. One was cognitive restructuring and the other one was mindfulness. They taught young people how to do this, and then they told them, in a week's time, you're going to do a a public public speech, which was, of course, going to elicit a lot of anxiety. What they then did is proceeded to monitor their levels of of anxiety and Uh, rumination over the coming days um, to see how uh, the intervention that they were exposed to affected those different um, processes over time in the lead up to the event. Um, And they compared those to a control group. And it was interesting. So the cognitive restructuring, it helped immediately after they were exposed to it, after they learned that skill. And then after they did the speech task, but not, not on the day of the speech task, their levels of anxiety were the same as the control group. The mindfulness one was interesting as well. It also helped immediately in, in, in the lead up to the, to the speech task, but on the day of it, they were actually more nervous, more anxious than the people who'd never done mindfulness. So I think that this kind of um, more detailed understanding of the processes and how they unfold over time and in relation to events that are going on outside the person, you know, what it is that they're anxious about, things that are happening in their daily lives, helps us to understand a bit more about how um, how they might work and when some of the optimum timings might be. So these authors suggest that um, the best time to deliver those sorts of interventions are at, at the time at which someone becomes anxious about a, a future event, um, on the day of that event, and then immediately afterwards is the best kind of dosage and timing for that, uh, which I think is, is really interesting. Yeah, um, it's really interesting, isn't it? I think it does. Yeah. Um, have implications for how we do future research as well. It's quite simple methodologically, yeah. isn't it? But really impactful in terms of our findings. Yeah, well, I just think that there's more dimensions to this. I'm a, I, I think that there's, you know, a temporal dimension, you know, how things unfold over time and a contextual dimension, like the, the the context that the person is surrounded by and the way that their symptoms interact with that. They're not they're not just a single, you know, score on, on a measure after an intervention. There's actually their experiences of these interventions and these problems that they have happen very much, you know, in, in, in their own world. And I think that there's a lot of clues there as to how we might help them better at those moments. 
all of these active ingredients projects have been asked to involve youth advisors. And it's a kind of core part of the method that you're, you're following. And for some of the researchers, that was a new thing and for others less so. I saw a, a Twitter thread that you posted on the day that you'd done some workshops mm. with the young, young advisors. How was that work? Oh, it was incredible. I was so um, I was so inspired by by that, and I was called to Twitter to kind of share how important it was. And um, Welcome really emphasised this in the entire project. In in the call out, they said that we needed to address within the grant application exactly how we were going to incorporate lived experience within the process. So it was a re requirement, um, and I'm glad that it was because it was in incredibly valuable. Um, we spoke to six young people with lived experience of depression and anxiety and also three clinicians. Um, we ran two different focus groups and we spent about an hour with them, with both of them. And the amount of learnings that we got from that were, were, were pr pretty phenomenal. And they all, when you sit down and you talk to people who either work in this context or have these experiences in their day-to-day -day life you it forces you to reframe you know what you can what you can take and what you do take from from the research literature so you know the young people told us about how com complex their experience was of repetitive negative thinking and how much it related to the things that were going on around them and the other active ingredients that are probably or mechanisms really that are that are going on in those moments. They they talked about it as kind of a snowball um, cap capturing them and, and bringing in other sorts of problems as it got larger and larger and more uncontainable. They talked about um, you know the importance of of when when interventions were delivered and how you know spending an hour a week with a with a therapist was not the time that they needed that support. It was actually in those moments when they were stuck in their thinking um, and they couldn't get out. Th those were the points in time when they needed the most help. Um, and, and clinicians said similar things about the limits to their reach to help young people. They also had a lot to say actually clinicians about um, how they apply the, how, what sorts of treatments they use for repetitive negative thinking in, in young people. And we spoke a lot about um, interventions that that target the process of thinking. So things like mindfulness and acceptance um, versus the content focus interventions like um, cognitive restructuring, which try and modify you know, the content of the negative thought challenge in some way. Um, we had some interesting findings actually in the review about that, which I can talk about in a second, but um, they said that depending on the age of the young person and also the, the type of negative thoughts, they use different intervention approaches they, they felt that starting with building awareness of the process of repetitive negative thinking that it was happening and how it unfolded um, was very important for younger um, younger adolescents who perhaps didn't have that knowledge of what, what was happening. Um, and then later on, they tended to use more cognitive behavioural techniques for as a starting point. And when they, if they found that the thoughts themselves weren't, um, they weren't modifiable, they were either very rigid or even if they were very valid, like if um, the person was grieving the death of a loved one, for example, they tended to switch to more process-focused interventions like um, acceptance, um, mindfulness, self-compassion um, and things like this. So just that beautiful nu nuance, you, you just can't get that from the scientific findings and having conversations with um, you know, young people and clinicians was invaluable.
So six million dollar question then, what did you learn <laughs> from this research that you couldn't have learned already from the existing published literature? <laughs> that is a six million dollar question. Um, I think it identified, you know, a lot of um, important directions for for future research and how how I'll be approaching my research. I'd like to start to um, think differently about how I go about studying interventions. Um, first of all, we need more um, trials that have multiple assessment time points so that we can look at, like Medini did, so that we look at we can look at the changes in processes over time. This will also help us to understand whether or not uh, reductions in repetitive negative thinking are what is causing the changes um, in depression and anxiety. That that's a um, a big gap. Um, but I think we also need to start thinking more about how we deliver these sorts of in, um, interventions and and when, um, and also who they work best for. There really was not a lot to say about um, about that in the literature, despite the fact it was such an important um, part of what we were called. Um, to do. I saw in the young people sessions that you had that there was quite a lot of comment about whether interventions were culturally specific or were delivered mm. in a way that was um, accessible so digitally for example what what do you think are the implications considering those issues and wider issues of your work in terms of practice and future research? Yeah, they did have a lot to say about this. Um, you know, in, in thinking about that question of when an intervention should be delivered and how, one of the things they spoke about is, you know, the accessibility and making sure that the context that young people are in, you know, schools essentially, um, for many of them or universities, making sure that the interventions are actually available within those settings um, is going to be really important, um, they said, for um, actually ensuring that they're accessed and that they're, um, you know, appropriate for them. They don't have to go into somewhere that makes them feel un uncomfortable. Um, and similarly with the, the um, whether or not those um, services are actually culturally appropriate, it's got, comes down a lot to how comfortable the young person um, feels in that environment and whether or not the intervention is being delivered in a way that um, is suitable to who they are as, as a person and, and their background. Mm -hmm.